Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Barder from the Centre for Global Development. Our topic today is complexity. And to discuss that, I'm joined here in the CGD office in Europe by two very brilliant people. Ben Ramallingham is the author of Aid on the Edge of Chaos, a book published last year which looks at how complexity ideas are being brought into the mainstream of aid. Ben is affiliated in various ways to the Overseas Development Institute, to the Institute of Development Studies, to the London School of Economics, as well as working with various aid agencies to help them improve the way they manage aid projects. Ben is also in the middle of writing his next book. Ben, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you, Anne. Great to be here. And my second guest is Stefan Durkin, a development economist who is both a professor of economics at Oxford University and also the chief economist at the British Department for International Development. Stefan somehow manages to remain active in research at the same time as being a bureaucrat. And he works on a diverse range of subjects such as risk and poverty, the foundations of growth, agriculture, childhood poverty, micro-insurance, and so on. Stefan, it's great to have you on Development Drums. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so we're going to split this discussion into three parts. In the first part, we're going to do our best to explain to, a, to an audience that isn't steeped in this what complexity means. Uh, in the second part, we're going to take a bit of a sceptical look, I think, at whether this adds anything to what we already knew. And then in the third part, we'll explore, explore the practical implications uh, for managing aid, for managing development and cooperation. And we'll talk about the challenges involved in uh, aid agencies adjusting the way they work. So, the first part, Ben. I think it would help listeners to understand what we mean by complexity. And in particular to understand whether it means something more than just this is a very complicated problem. So perhaps you want to start by telling us about simple, complicated and complex and, and that idea. Yeah, I think um, perhaps the best way to understand complexity from a science or public policy perspective is to think about the kind of problem we face. And in the book, I set out three distinct kinds of problems. The first kind, which I call simple problems, are those which are, consist of one or two variables, where you can break them down into simple equations, which are always followed in these phenomena. So the best example is Newtonian uh, mechanics, but not just uh, uh, physical processes. There are a number of energetic processes that follow this kind of model, certain public health processes, like the results of vaccination programs, um, certain aspects of sanitation. So these are simple problems and there are all kinds of uh, methods and tools that we can use to analyse and understand and respond to these problems. Now at the other extreme you have problems which are made up of many different kinds of variables which are interacting randomly. So from the physical sciences you've got the motion of atoms or thermodynamics. In social sciences you could think about the death rate in human populations. And the key to these problems is to apply statistics to identify averages and generate insights. So the kinds of things that actuarial scientists do to understand the risks of various kinds of things in populations and create profiles and therefore generate profits for insurance companies. Now the challenge that complexity scientists try to grapple with are the problems in between these two. So these are problems with a certain number of variables that interact in an intricate fashion uh, they can't be easily broken down using uh, equations which say these are the one or two most imp important variables, nor can you meaningfully apply statistics to these. 
Um, and so there are examples of these would be changes in commodity prices, the growth of cities, social movements or mass movements generally, uh, the spread of disease. Uh, so that's, so what, that's what you mean when you say on the edge of chaos. This isn't um, just a, a, a doomsayer view that, you know, oh, it's, it's kind of random. You're, this is a specific mathematical term, isn't it, the Abs- edge of chaos? Absolutely. And, and it's one which, um, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about methods, it's one which appears in many different ways in the methods that we have to understand the problems of that third kind. So these are, these are problems which are described in a number of ways as being um, interdependent, they change over time, they're interrelated with a number of different factors, and they often push back against simple fixes. Um, and this is a framing which came really from the 1940s, which has proved quite influential. Um, it was used by Herb Simon in his work uh, on the foundations of behavioural economics and understanding bounded rationality. It was used by Jane Jacobs when she was talking about urban development and the growth of cities. It was used by Hayek in talking about the limits of knowledge. The, the whole idea of wicked problems, which was developed by urban social planners, actually came from this approach through Jane Jacobs. So there's, a, there's quite a rich tradition of using this to understand the limits of traditional scientific and policy approaches. So one of the things that I've learned as, as we've uh, talked more about complexity is that in the physical sciences, especially in biology and physics... Uh, and, and chemistry and meteorology and so on, that these ideas, these models in this space on the edge of chaos, this complexity space, are widely used with, with, in lots of different applications. Mm. And that complex adaptive systems are, describe all kinds of different natural phenomena. But that in economics, we haven't borrowed as much from the natural sciences as perhaps we might have. Is that a fair characterization? Um, I'll, I'll kind of let Stefan talk more about the limitations of economics when it comes to dealing with these kinds of problems. I guess the, the it seems to be quite well understood that um, there are there's a heterodox school in economics which actually do, does borrow from these approaches: evolutionary economists, behavioural economists, and so on. If you look at the the kinds of uh, economists that have been leading on this kind of work, like Herb Simon, Hayek, and so on, there, there are Nobel laureates amongst them. I think the challenge is, why has that school of economics still failed to influence public policy and the way that public policy operates to a substantive degree? And I think that's the challenge which Eric Beinhocker talks about in The Origin of Wealth, for example. Can you tell us a bit more about the characteristics of these complex adaptive systems? This, what, how, how would we know if we were in this space between well-ordered, simple, um, linear systems mm. and just random, this edge of chaos space. What does it look like there? Maybe just give you a very practical example uh, based on where we are. We're in the centre of London. If you uh, try to understand the problem of traffic and traffic flow through the centre of London has become a a major headache and a challenge for urban planners, how would you actually go about doing it? Could you apply uh, an equation to say this is how how to predict a traffic jam? You probably couldn't. Could you try and understand the average behaviour of traffic through the city. Well, actually, what we know is the average speed of traffic through London hasn't really increased in well over two centuries. So there's something more going on here. If you try and understand the uh, traffic, uh, you, can, you can understand it as a group of agents, uh, individuals, cars that are moving through. And the, the most significant thing for any traffic plan is to think about the, the rate at which cars are m- moving through. 
and traffic, if you look at a map of London, we're able to see how traffic jams build up. They don't happen in a predictable fashion. They, they might occur in certain places on a road and then slowly move down the road. They might emerge in a, in a certain place unpredictably. They might have tailbacks which are created by certain interactions in one place which then leads to blockages elsewhere. So there are, if, you, if you just take that very simple example, complex systems analysis on the whole can be used, uh, can be explained by talking about examples like that. So you have multiple agents interacting. They're competing for a scarce resource, in this case roads, but it doesn't have to be. It could be money or whatever. They have certain behaviours or rules that govern how they operate. And the overall properties of that system are not, cannot be easily understood just by understanding how a car works or how an individual drives. You have to step back and look at the properties of the system as a whole. You need to understand those patterns and then try and respond to those patterns. So, so one thing that interested me when I looked at these is that the way, for example, tra you model traffic jams is quite similar to the way you model a thunderstorm or the way you model consciousness of the human brain or the way you model a whirlpool in a river, that, that these, um, this notion of having individual parts of the system that interact with each other and evolve in response to each other gives you a common set of system dynamics across all these different fields. Is that, you're, you're frowning at me as if I've got that wrong, so tell Sli me why that's slightly, wrong. Slightly, slightly, because, uh, because in a traffic, in, a, in the situation of traffic, you have individuals, which you don't have in a thunderstorm, which you don't have in a whirlpool. You have individuals who are making decisions, who have beliefs about what could happen, and those beliefs can have an influence on whether or not a traffic jam is going to happen. If everyone puts their brakes on, we've all seen this from driving down a motorway, everyone puts their brakes on at the same time, anticipating that things, traffic's going to slow down, it can actually create a jam. So you've got to, um, I would say the whirlpool and the um, thunderstorm examples are slightly different because those are complex systems in a, in a different sense to the way that social systems are complex. But in, in the case of a thunderstorm, each molecule is responding to the other molecules around it, even it's though not it's not consciously making a decision. Yeah. I mean, I, there are things like ant colonies or, or ant starlings colonies in flight. Yeah, that would be a better example. But not, there's very few biological examples that can give us the whole sweep of uh, approaches or, you know, the behavioural approach which, uh, which complex adaptive systems focus on as opposed to just a purely complex system. Okay, I'd like to bring in Stefan now um, uh, to, to test whether this is really adding anything to what we already knew. I certainly felt as an economist reading about nonlinear systems. You know, my, I started my professional career doing macroeconomic modelling in the Treasury, and we had a vast nonlinear model, and I didn't need a biologist to tell me that its results were unpredictable and it was subject to um, small shocks, would give you very different answers. That, so I've, I felt this, you know, it felt to me like we already had this stuff covered. Stefan, does it feel to, to you like we've already got this stuff covered? Um, to a large extent, yes. I think... We, we should be very careful always when we try to generalize about economics as this or this is what, what the practice is. You know, there are certain phenomena and, you know, the recent experience with bringing some elements of chaos theory and complexity analysis from other fields in little bits of economics have proved quite, quite useful. But actually, there's a, there was already a huge amount of work that actually talks to that. You know, the, you, we mentioned early evolutionary biologists. Of course, you know, they have always interacted very closely with game theorists and strategic behavior. And, and in fact, you know, where, where we may have certain worries about certain elements of assumptions that game theorists would make for, for on, on rational decision making, you know, biologists, biologists have found it extremely useful to talk to, to economists in terms of properly understanding the strategic behavior of lots 
sorts of species and so on. And indeed, you know, there is a, there is a huge wealth of work that actually talks about, you know, the interdependencies, the strategic behavior and so on. But actually even, even further in, in basic modeling and not least in development, it's, uh, you know, Poverty traps is a very old idea, you know, that is a nonlinear system. Rosenstein wrote and in 1940s was writing about it and we still, you know, all the big push ideas, they are fundamentally based on a simple mathematical model of complementarities that leads to, so interdependence, that leads to trap type of behavior. And, um, you know, we had a lot of work in the 1980s similarly to on this equilibrium models, how models are behaving in the 1980s. In fact, when I was in graduate school, that's what we were doing, these equilibrium models. These things are there. Uh, tipping points, very popular now, but you know, multiple equilibrium models have been around in economics for a very long time. And indeed, in poverty, stay swiftly, one of the things I've always used is in my modeling on, on developing countries is to actually think, you know, are there these kind of multiple equilibrium outcomes that actually would get us? Um, the same with interdependence in forms of network analysis, you know, multiple equilibrium, say, in, in models of how do norms come about. There's quite a lot of that. There's uh, yeah, quite uh, a lot of that. Go on, Ben. I mean, I, I, this, this is really interesting because I, I, Stefan, I mean, you, you've used network analysis to show how aid distributions go to those people that are most closely connected to the people in power. And you've used um, nonlinear dynamics to look at um, exactly that issue of multiple equilibrium poverty traps. But in, in, in that work, you highlight that the fact that these things would have profound policy implications if they were taken on by aid agencies or development agencies. And I think there's a challenge there that the, the development research may well be ahead of where development practice is. And so we need to do two things. I think we need more, more investment in development research, which looks at this kind of thing. So I don't think it happens as a matter of course. And I've done a lot of work on peer-reviewed articles. You know, I, I've, I've referenced over 1,600 things in my book, and there's, there's not a huge amount of research out there in development. That's point number one, or my challenge. Point number two is, if it is being done by people like yourself who are ahead of the curve, I don't think it's being utilised enough in policy and practice. So I want to come to how aid agencies use this idea in the third section, but I yes. just want to get, I want to stick to the conceptual framework. Right, because I think that's exactly also there that I want to make a distinction. The the, you know, when we think about what is the practice and the, the eight agencies, although I think, you know, I could highlight a few surprising, surprising examples that actually fundamentally drive uh, the narratives that are driven from some of these kind of disequilibrium and multiple equilibrium type of models. Uh, you know, the, the uh, big ones, but I'll, we can come back to that later. Um, in terms of the conceptualization, it is actually quite standard practice to do quite a lot of this, these elements of modeling. I mean, I think there's another misunderstanding that I want to quickly get out of mm. the way here, uh, which is the following, is that, you know, while the world is pretty complicated, it doesn't mean that all research that looks at the world has to start treating the world as one complex entity. It's been a long established practice in research, and that's also why most of the research in the world, including in all the fields that you were quoting outside economics, will not be of the variety that you look at, because there is a, it's one of the big uh, areas of progress, I would say since medieval times, then we only looked at, say, astronomy, it had to be explained as a whole, it had to be holistic, where, where research start understanding. If we start cutting problems into pieces, we, we, we are conscious that we do need to build them up again, but we are, we do need, that's how progress is being made in lots of, lots of bits and pieces. So if we have an awful lot of research that seems to look at a small problem, it is not right to actually say, oh, that actually shows that they are doing the wrong thing. Um, the whole thing, even, you know, some of the, of your heroes that you quote in your book, 
um, one that I uh, have a, a, some, some history with, Ilya Prikogin, you were quoting, going back to Order Out of Chaos. You know, the early 80s, the book that had quite a, quite a big impact. I actually did my undergraduate dissertation on that book and, and actually looking at the economic implications uh, of it. But actually, people like that, most of the analysis is not of that nature that you described, but at some point to say, but now here I have a problem. If I do want to understand the totality, I have to bring it together. So, so we have to understand it is, it, we, 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 we shouldn't just simply say economics should all the time do this. There, and there's plenty. Ben. I mean, Stefan, I'm, I would not disagree with anything you're saying. I'm not saying for a second that we should be discarding all of those things, all of those methods, all of those approaches, which since medieval times, as you say, have progressed things. If you were to do a list of all the things that uh, uh, have been solved using Newtonian-style mechanics uh, and equations thereupon, uh, you'd have a very long list indeed. It's the, uh, I joke about it in the book. I say it's a bit like the life of Brian scene. What did the Romans ever do for us? What did Newtonian thinking ever do for us? It's done a tremendous amount. But now if you look at the kinds of problems that we now face in, in the world where we're looking at climate change, urbanization, migration, these are all problems. Uh, governance, how you bring about democracy, how you ensure sustainable growth within limits of uh, resources, how you ensure that you can uh, navigate through conflict in the face world of water scarcity these are all problems that are fundamentally different to the ones that we faced and so my argument isn't we should discard that other stuff it's just that we should be bringing those scientific approaches that the heroes that you talk about in the book did actually identify did utilize to to, for, to take their some of their kind of grander conclusions about the world and not only that but there are there are increasingly people that are applying those techniques and tools and so uh, if the ecologists that need to understand why fishing stocks are depleting can't look at a single species of fish. They have to step back and they have to look at how those species of fish are interacting with each other. Um, someone that wants to understand the financial instruments that were utilised in the financial crisis can't simply look at one instrument and its performance, has to look at how it, it worked in a network of interdependent factors, the overall financial system. Uh, if you want to understand poverty, argument, you can't just look at poverty. You know this as well as better than I do. You can't just look at poverty. You need to look at conflict. You need to look at politics. You need to look at water availability. All I'm, all I'm talking about is that there are groups of scientists who now search for the data, try and assemble it based on a good, rigorous understanding of the components of that system, but actually say we're not just going to boil it down. We have to look at the whole. And there are different ways in which they can look at the whole. And my, my only argument is that there is value to that in aid, and yep. we should be bringing more of that in. I want to give you a stronger challenge than Ben is giving you, Stefan, which I, I uh, recently had uh, Jim Robinson and Darren Asimoglu on, on development drums. And, if, you know, if you, could, if you had to write their book in one sentence, it would be, you know, it's the politics, stupid, that politics determines institutions and policies and behaviours and that, that in turn affects savings and capital and growth and all these other things that matter. And I... You know, I, I thought it's very plausible and, and sensible to say that that uh, people are making choices based on uh, elite power, um, the elites trying to uh, garner resources for themselves. But I wanted them to say that the politics are themselves endogenous, that, that the politics emerge from a system, that they emerge from uh, economic behavior and technology and accumulation and, and uh, communications and all these other things affect the politics just as politics affect them. And it felt to me, again, like yet another economics book 
by uh, one economist and one recovering economist, as he calls himself, that was looking for some reductionist answer to a system problem. And, you know, this is, as, as system, uh, you know, as reductionist answers go, it wasn't a bad one. But it felt to me like it would have benefited from closing the loop, from saying, actually, we have to think about all of this as a system, rather than what, what I felt to me the part that was missing was, well, if it's the politics, what are we supposed to do about it? And yeah, I think the book is very weak in that. So, so the challenge to you is, isn't it true that as economists, we still do look for a reduction that says the thing that's missing is capital, the thing that's missing is policies, the thing that's missing is information, the thing that's missing is a technology or, or a, a, an institution or the politics or something, rather than saying, well, actually, how do we understand how all these things evolve with each other? I, I will definitely not uh, try to now answer for Jim and, and Deron. So I've seen it from their point of view, they do what they do. But if I were to think of how, how research takes place and how you do research, because you are asking for more sometimes than res what research can deliver in a sensible way. And what, what researchers have to understand and what they, when they do it well, they do look, they look, they explore either a particular hypothesis, like uh, why nations fail and definitely the research beforehand was trying to do, and to actually, you know, going around and keep on working with that, with that particular hypothesis. Um, and they, they, they identify a particular factor, and so other researchers will incrementally also start trying to, try to uncover. The, what is already quite interesting, and in fact, if you think of uh, what, what is already um, almost getting a bit close to what Ben wants, is that what they do very well is to actually try to then make the process, the interdependence, from when it's the path dependence of process to really come out. But they clearly are, okay, going for a particular route in one, one particular way. I think that's, that's by the nature of doing good research. What, what, what Ben is asking for is actually something that, um, that uh, will not, not, not be able to start from an evidence base that you can actually have enough confidence of putting the pieces together. Now, me now in a policy environment... I have more sympathy on this. This is also why we need to come back to it. In a policy environment, we do need to answer the big question. That's the, that's the exam question put to me. I need to now use aid and, and advise on using aid to actually alleviate poverty in the world. So now I actually have to start weighing all these different parts. But when I'm as a researcher, I need to get as rigorous, as careful an answer on a particular part preferably with complementarities built in. But the moment I simply want to take everything, I will take lots of leaps of faith. And there are multiple possible. And this is actually one of the weaknesses, I, I, I always think, with elements of systems research. You know, going back to medieval times, they had a really good system to explain how the universe worked. It was beautifully that all the agents, including all the angels and God, and everybody had their role in it, their place. It is almost a perfect agent-based model. But it actually, and it used the best possible evidence that it had, which was very little. And, and it was a plausible, this is a bit like a policymaker could do. This is a plausible take on the evidence available, and I can actually describe the, 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 the way the universe works. It was totally wrong. 
And this is where, you know, we can, I can, in my position, describe in multiple ways. In fact, many of these examples that you have, I could have thought of several other ways I'd describe the systems, given the available information, and come out with different answers. You need the evidence. You need the, the kind of mini, uh, the, the minute analysis, the very careful analysis that people do on little bits and pieces to get us the sensible links in that analysis to possibly build up, possibly for a policymaker, that bigger picture. But as a research tool, I'm actually much more skeptical. We, we should be a bit more careful in terms of making that a research method as the way of doing it, rather than actually something that can help us think through policy, thinks to imperfect information, starting to put the thing together. I mean, you used the example of, say, the financial crisis earlier. Now, it's a very interesting thing because all the elements, all the information was in, uh, you could have argued was available to actually say that, you know, Schelling's kind of view that potentially the system could break down, it was there, you know, and people were sometimes saying this. But, you know, on all the balance of probabilities, it could also not have broken down. It's very easy to say, oh, if only we've done complexity analysis, we would have seen that this would come out. No, this is one possible world. It's very good to describe also exposed of how things have come about as a kind of and as a research tool to have any form of, you know, predictive or analytical power, you have to be a bit more careful how far you will go with it. And so this is where I'm, we must make some of these distinctions there and also clearly see, you know, the complementarities between the standard way of doing research and some of this thinking, this, uh, this systems thinking that we get. I, I, I guess I would, I would take exception to the fact that it's, it's not a set of research tools. They're clearly research tools. Some of them have a long history, 50, 50 years or longer. And if you look at things like network analysis, for example, which has been used ex post to understand the financial crisis and has been used by people at the Bank of England, Director of Financial Stability and so on, working with ecologists like Bob May. Can I interrupt you? Astrology uh, has been used for that in that way as well for many, many decennia, let's say, centuries. But I think you're absolutely right. I, but what you, what you seem to be arguing for is that researchers shouldn't be stepping back to look at the whole. And I, and I think that there are increasingly problems where we do have to do exactly that. Where sim uh, and there's a, there's a yeah. le uh, let me finish. There's a, there's a there's recently um, Esther Duflo talked about the value of randomised controlled trials is that they help you build up a systemic picture of the issue, the concern by understanding in detail the intricacies of, of cause and effect in particular situations. The challenge is obviously as uh, Angus Deaton talked about on this program and talked about previously, there's a limit to the generalizability that you can get. Of that. And if a systemic issue is what you need to, if the systemic lens is what you need, if you need to be able to step out, there are methods out there and they are credible research methods. They're, you know, These are things, the EPSRC here in the UK has four doctoral training centers in complexity science they're, and they're investing millions of pounds. The EU is investing millions of pounds. These are legitimate research techniques as well as policy influencing techniques my argument is that there's a there's a increasingly being utilized in development the, uh, one of the best examples of it being used for predictive purposes is the the work led by um, uh, Ricardo Hausmann on the wealth of nations and, and that applies network analysis techniques to to trade data to generate um, useful insights into how nations can grow and it's been shown to be more more accurate a predictor of growth than many of the tools we already use. Okay, I want to want to uh, come in now because I want to actually. Uh, there's, a, there's a few things that you, you you've raised, and I do want to comment on them. So the first step is that you say, "Oh, we want researchers to look at the whole and not not at the specific." Not just. I'm not saying. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying just at the whole. Yeah, I'm no, saying no. you need to do both. No, no, but this is the important thing. 
I, I have, I'm in total agreement, and especially from where I'm sitting now in, in DFID, it is important that we keep on trying to put this world together. This, this world of, 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 of imperfect knowledge about lots of phenomena, that we need to put, put this together. And indeed, if I need to design, working with the government and design, say, a public spending or public investment program, I better try to piece together and, and everything I get. So there's no disagreement. What I would disagree with, and there's a little bit that one, 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 one leads to that conclusion. Therefore, all research that doesn't do it is, must be bad. I think it's actually one of the biggest mistakes. But I don't think anybody's saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. No, no, no. But, but I, there is sometimes a bit of the, 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 the tendency to actually say research has to, each bit of this research has to have this direct relevance on the interventions and the policy implications. I think one of the yeah. problems we have a little bit in development research, more than in other fields, is to always look for the direct implication of it. And I, 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 I think we're on the same side. Yeah, and that's also indeed where some of the problems emerge, because then we get sometimes very specific things that actually earn quite a bit of insight, are put suddenly onto the level of, and this needs to be acted upon in a policy space, because it misses all kinds of the complementarities, and in fact it may be a bad idea, it may mm. have some of the impact. So, so but, just, yeah. to, just to clarify, you mean you, you, for example, a randomised control trial that says deworming tablets work in place X, therefore let's do them everywhere, or that, uh, flip charts work, in, is that the kind of thing where, where they're... Well, I wasn't, I wasn't here <laughs> trying to use it as to trying to comment on... Uh, no, but on, I'm just on, saying, on for, example, for, no, for example... I, so I think, uh, actually, I go much, much longer back when I was a graduate student where there was a particular seminar series where the first question that always the chair asked them what are the policy implications mm. and I think it was the wrong question you know there should be pieces of research quite a lot of them that should be be careful with it so in the same with an RCT you know look I don't need to go here through the through the debates on on the on the generalizability or not of course we mm. need to see of whether course. we can do it the scalability similarly even in the setting and indeed what the meaning of causality is in these kind of settings the heterogeneity and so on so it it illuminates something. It provides some bits of an evidence. But Stefan, so I'm completely with you in the idea that it makes sense for researchers to dig into, in a sense, partial equilibrium problems where you're really trying to understand particular drivers of a particular case. In what circumstances would deworming tablets mean that more kids go to school? Really try, try to understand that. I do worry, though, that um, it's a bit like a biologist who doesn't understand evolution. Yes, you can do good bits of biology. Yes, you can really try and understand how you know the esophagus works. Um, but if you didn't understand evolution, if you didn't understand um, how complex animals evolved, you, you wouldn't really understand what exactly those different organs in a, in a in an animal were doing and why they were there. You wouldn't understand why you had bits of redundancy. Um, you wouldn't understand... Um, you could describe how the human eye works as a biologist, but I think we would think that a biologist who didn't understand evolution probably only had part of the story in their research. If they didn't have at the back of their mind that the eye evolved in a particular way for particular reasons then their understanding of the of the thing they were looking at in detail would be incomplete it would be um it might be fantastically detailed and accurate about the individual thing they're looking at but it would in effect be useless it seems to me if they didn't if they didn't also understand biology and i sometimes feel in economics that that's the position we're in that economists ignore the idea that they're working in an evolving 
complex adaptive system and just focus in on a particular part of it, but ignore this bigger picture. And I feel the same way about economists who don't understand complexity as I feel about biologists who don't understand evolution. See, I can't speak for biologists, and I don't know whether there wouldn't be biologists <laughs> listening to this and thinking, you know, there's yeah, still I'm a... Maybe I'm talking there, rubbish, right? Yes, exactly. There is a real use to actually simply understand the human eye. No, there is. Yes, uh, I'm saying there is, but, but, it's, but, 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 it's, but it's only... It isn't sure. complete. No, no, and, 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 that's, and, and I wouldn't I wouldn't deny that, but I actually would want to say, you know, there's the body of, the body of evidence, the body of science, the body of economics should hopefully be talking about the whole and so there should be hopefully people who bring up bring up the micro things up to a slightly more macro uh, level there would be people that start from a macro lens to a more micro lens a more dynamic a growth a long term historical to a very minute micro level I, I, I think that, you know, on the, on the balance of things if that's the criticism I think there is actually quite a lot going on do we as, uh, do we do um, enough to stay ahead of the curve, to actually being enough forward-looking of what are the problems of today? You know, it's the typical joke about the scientists being excellent about explaining the problems of yesterday, and definitely the economist in its method is actually more tempted to go for the safe ground and actually trying to understand, you know, what is, what is the problems of yesterday? Do we have encouraged our researchers enough to actually try to think forward what the implications are of what they're, what they're doing, what is, what is it coming from? No, I don't think so. And, and, and if there's a cultural problem maybe in economics is that there's often not enough spaces where really top-level economists actually end up talking, you know, look, this is what I now think it means. Although I must say, you know, given that almost every other economist of any repute these days has to write their bestseller, I think it's actually quite an interesting thing, is that you now get actually, um, uh, you know, get people to actually actually putting much more the, the sum of their vision together. And I think that's actually already something. So, so as a profession, are we narrow? Maybe at times and several are, but I don't think it's as, as gloomy as you like to describe it. But um, I guess my, my argument isn't about the economics. Prof- you know, I don't, I don't spend time focusing on the economics profession in the book per se. I think there's, a, there's an issue around how the, the institutions within which aid operate and which are shaped by many of the ideas in economics. And that's the, the, what we're going to come to next. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, at the Centre for Global Development. My guests are Ben Ramallingham, the author of Aid on the Edge of Chaos, and Stefan Durkin, currently Diffid's chief economist and all-round smart thinker about development economics. If you enjoy Development Drums, you might also like the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, CGD's other podcast, in which Lawrence MacDonald explores a topical issue with a CGD fellow. And let me also plug the monthly podcast from the Overseas Development Institute and the Guardian monthly development podcast. You'll find all these on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else that good podcasts are found. Or if you Google my blog, Owen Bader, um, you will find a list of development podcasts uh, listing those and some others that you might find interesting. So we've talked about complexity and what it means, um, and we've talked about whether economists do a good enough job of including complexity in their thinking. Now we're going to turn to this key question of um, whether we should be making more use than we are of complexity ideas in the way we do development cooperation. Ben, your book, begins with a pretty damning critique of the aid industry and it um, 
it, it starts with that and then it moves on to talk about complexity and it talks about uh, about the, the so what section, about what we should do. But th this first section on how aid works today, um, I thought was a, a bit of a caricature. It was full of all these straw men that were, it, it's all linear thinking, it's all mechanical, it's all log frames, it's all, it, it felt, you know, monolithic, planned, all the criticisms that we're used to. Um, do you think, um, in retrospect, that that's a fair caricature of the aid system, or um, where is the aid system today relative to where you think it should be with, with complexity? I, I think... Um I actually felt like I pulled my punches a little bit in that in that first part after getting f uh, feedback from the peer reviewers and so on. That it, uh, so uh, my own views actually, and that's built built up on evidence from evaluations, from studies, and so on. It wasn't just me pulling ideas out of a hat. I, I want to look at the the challenges within aid, or the institutions of aid, the rules of the game that shape how aid operates. And I looked at four different areas. I looked at how aid agencies learn, how they assess their performance, how they organise themselves, and how they plan. And across those areas, I identified, that, indeed, these very strong, powerful, overwhelming, in some cases, tendencies towards treating the world in certain ways. And that's tied up intimately with, with the politics of aid. What, what, what do we need to tell our funders and our donors about what we're doing in aid? How do we, how do we navigate that? So I, I, I'm quite careful not to say people in aid are, believe these things or that they, they support them wholeheartedly. But what, what I'm saying is actually a subtler point, that there are the institutions within which aid operates. It means large amounts of the money has to be programmed according to these principles. So say in a sentence what those principles are. What are the ways in, what are, what are the ways in which aid is... Um, well, it, it takes me back to that, my very first point, that you can essentially assume there's a problem X, which you can apply solution Y to, and if you've got enough money to buy enough of or deliver enough of Y, then you'll eventually eradicate problem X. And there are large amounts of the development system that are based exactly on this issue. When the Millennium Development Goals were created and forged, uh, one of the challenges of the Millennium uh, uh, Challenge kind of group that Jeffrey Sachs led was about getting low-cost solutions to each of those problems. And that mentality is still very much there. It underpins so much of what aid expenditure, what aid agencies have to deal with. And that's problematic. And that's so Ros Eben had that interesting paper saying that um, there's a, a, a way of describing the aid system that we have to do when we report to headquarters. We have to fill in the log frame and, and fill in the business case as if everything's mechanical because that's what our politicians or, our, or the National Order Office or somebody needs. But in reality, most people on the ground know that it's much more, um, much more complex than that, that it's about relationships and networks and testing ideas and evolving and so on. Um, is what you're criticising, as it were, the form that we're all required to fill in, or is it the actual behaviour on the ground? Um. I think it's a bit of both because I think the form that you have to fill in or the approach of the institution, because the form is only a representation of the institution, right. shapes the way that we behave in lots of settings. So people end up doing things under the wire despite the settings. They do things as a kind of... Uh, a silent guerrilla warfare within their own institutions and many of the most successful innovations have come about despite the system rather than because of it and it comes about at, I would say quite high personal professional cost you've got lots of people who are running at high levels of exhaustion they're, uh, they're stressed out with their institute because they're not being supported to be an innovator they're being asked to toe the line in a variety of different ways there, may, and there, are, there are exceptions to this but there's large parts of the system where this uh, this kind of culture of 
bureaucratic oversight and control is just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and uh, Andrew Natsios famously wrote about it in the kind of counter-bureaucracy uh, critique that in he a faced. a paper published by the Centre for Global Development. Indeed, indeed, which is a, a great paper and I'd recommend everyone read it. It should be a, a kind of part of Development 101, I think. I think, I think that, that's the kind of fundamental problem is that it's, it's very easy to turn around and say, oh, well, this criticism has been made before. It's an old critique. Therefore, it doesn't have any, have any, hold any water. I think what we have to ask ourselves is why is every generation of aid researchers coming up with this critique? From the 1960s, when you had um, people like Albert Hirschman talking about it, Robert Chambers in the 80s, and it's ha Andrew Natsios, and, and uh, more recent uh, efforts in looking at the need for rigor in evaluation, rigor in design, rigor in implementation, all talk about this need for more scientific approaches in development. So, Stefan. Um, is Ben pulling his punches? Is he erecting a straw man? Is he about right? It must be about straw men, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, that was predictable. That's very predictable. <laughs> I mean, when I was reading this, is that um, the, there was a couple of thoughts that came up in my head. Is that you know when you when you write about the fundamental pol problem of um, policymaking on development and the way we do development in well, we do aid. You know, how different would your critique be if you had to write it about, say, local government in any country, public policy, in a way, the kind of the real problems of public policy design, of, of, of what can you, you know, think of um, benefit policy or prison reform, where you... Uh, are dealing with political objectives to deal with a particular audience that actually is far removed from that reality where you start acting and so on. So when I was reading that, there were actually many examples, and that's, that's, that's where, I'm, where I'm sometimes troubled, is that it, presenting development, some of the problems of development, as fundamentally different from, from what they are in a, a more general public policy problem actually tends to give us sometimes somehow slightly different outcomes. To, to, to put a slight different, different um, slant to that is, you know, we often, in the way we like to talk about what we're doing in these countries with Millennium Development Goals and so on, we're going to turn all these countries into Finland or Sweden, you know, as if there is a global consensus that that is the perfect model. Uh, with incredible systems of, uh, with, with norms of behavior and an incredible systems that actually everything will do. So there is clearly a kind of a slightly made up world that, that we're living in. And I agree with that and it's creating certain problems. But still, you know, the disjoint that there would be between, you know, a lot of actual uh, public policy making and what's happening on the ground in countries everywhere uh, is, 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 is a little bit is there. So that's, that's, the, that's the thing. So to what extent do you make a difference? Another one that I actually do, so the historical thing, you know, the kind of, you know, the, why are we then all the time harking back to something that actually say, well, can we build up a slightly more objective way, a, a way kind of a more evidence way, uh, evidence-based way to actually doing this thing? Now, that's also an extremely long thing. I'm, I was reading recently an, an excellent book that's going to be published in English very soon on Congo by uh, David van Rijbroek, and, um, and it is just an excellent uh, account of 
basically 1910, roughly 1910, when Leopold II handed over the colony to the Belgian state, the Belgian state basically said, let's do a scientific approach, but realize that the context is totally different. So what's the first thing that the Belgians do? Send 50 anthropologists into Congo to do a detailed study of all the, the, all the ways of, of, of things are working. You know, a craven, you know where that ended. So, you know, the, 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 the craven to actually finding alternative ways. Now, even though you know, it may seem, looking at that example, a wrong thing to do. It is actually part of our attempts to try to actually see within the kind of messy world of policymaking anywhere in the world to actually see can we design something that gives us a little bit of a fallback position, sometime an, an, an island of transparency, maybe with some illusion around it, but something that we can actually do better. Yeah, and so there is a caricature there. It's always a fundamental pol problem of pol public policy. Can we actually do the right thing without having to be derailed by political objectives locally and internationally and being driven by them? Yes, it is a, it is a kind of an issue. I'd like to bring in a question that actually came from a, um, a listener to Development Drums, and she posted it on Facebook. It's from Millie Begovich, and it's a, a question for you, Ben. What principles from complexity science can we borrow and apply to the concept of scaling up in development projects? In other words, if through prototyping, quick interventions that probe the system, we learn a bit more about how the system works, the, the sense part, what conditions can we put in place that will allow the non-working prototypes, those that don't work, to die out and the successful ones to flourish? Can we look at the evolutionary biology for lessons here? And if so, what would those lessons be? And she says she's looking for very practical suggestions that a project manager working in a field could readily apply. Let me talk about uh, uh, what, I, what I think is one of the most significant innovations in the aid world in the last 15 years or so, which is the delivery of therapeutic feeding, community-based therapeutic feeding approaches. Um, about 15 years ago, the standard approach when you had malnutrition amongst under fives was that you built a big tent somewhere, um, usually in a dusty part of a, a rural part of Ethiopia or wherever, and you, you essentially set up a production line. You t let people know that you had this tent there, you, you staffed it with doctors and nurses, and you had uh, skinny babies coming in at one end and nice, plump, happy babies going out the other, and they were weighed and they were given all kinds of therapeutic treatments and so on. This is problematic for a number of reasons, and the reasons why it's problematic, you can understand by taking a wide-angle lens. That's what system dynamics helps you do. You take a wide-angle lens on the problem, you say, actually, people are coming there, there's all kinds of diseases that are happening, um, the rates of uh, mortality are high through these things, it costs a lot of money, costs a lot of resources, parents have to take their children away from their families, quite often to take their babies there, so is there a different way of doing this? And this is exactly the question that was posed by one of the leading exponents of this approach in the 1990s, a guy called Steve Collins. And by taking a, a systems view of that challenge, identified that actually, by better understanding the nature of that problem, malnutrition, where it occurs, the points at which it occurs, better understanding the motivations and the behaviours of the parents involved and, all, and indeed the aid agencies, understanding the kinds of networks of relationships that enable people to support children or not, and the dynamics of malnutrition. And those are the four key things that I talk about in my book, that you can actually change the way in which you do this thing. What he proposed was actually uh, a home-based treatment called Plumpy Nut. 
uh, which we, it was, that was the hardware, and the software was a community-based approach, a network-based approach that would enable uh, mothers and uh, fathers to treat their own children at home whilst also reporting into the aid agency. So the aid agency stops being the, the grand tent, the provider on high, and it becomes the, uh, the facilitator, the enabler of that innovation. Um, and it, it required all kinds of changes to happen through the system. When it was first suggested, the uh, UNICEF, MSF, the World Health Organization had big problems with it because it went in the face of 40 years of nutri child nutrition work. And the challenge was people were essentially turning around and saying, are you telling us everything we've done for the last 40 years is wrong? And the people involved got huge amounts of abuse, huge amounts of you know, quite personal criticism, actually, for suggesting that things should be done differently. And it all came to a head when the a classic aid distribution, which was seen to be unsustainable, not, not effective, was banned by Ethiopia in 2002. So they had an ethical basis on which they could trial this, this new approach. And they trialled it and turned out to be much more effective. And that, that tipping point, if you like, enabled them to maximise the, the, the effort that they put into understanding the system, understanding those relationships, understanding the networks, understanding the dynamics of malnutrition. And 10 years later, it became approved by the WHO. So I'm tell us a bit more about what the network analysis brought to this. Because it sounds to me, you know, I could describe this as we were doing something in an ineffective way, far away from the, the possibility frontier, and someone looked at it and said, blimey, we could do this better in the following way. And they moved closer, closer to the efficiency frontier. Well, mm. what, I, I what's think all the scuff about networks? Well, I think, I think the, the, the thing that's most useful, though, which is most useful for scale-up of innovation as a whole, is, is stepping back and looking at the system as a whole. So you don't just look at the, uh, the aspects of the problem that you're most focused on. So it's malnutrition. We provide therapeutic feeding, and that solves the problem. You need to try and understand the, the dynamics of the society, the behaviours that people are operating, the relationships between each other, and the relationships that you create. And by doing that, you, it's only by understanding all of those contextual factors that you can actually provide a solution. So, now, Stefan, there's something in this, isn't there? Because you were earlier making the case for researchers looking at a particular part of the problem, and there is a danger that when you do that, you, know, you can say, yes, people coming into the tent come out better better nourished and you're missing these bigger social broader impacts i have uh, and i absolutely agree that uh that trying to for, there will be for problems looking at a bigger picture of course and the, and, and the whole system that will that will make sense but there is a real danger in the way you present it here this kind of the the fail-proof version of something that can function here the system, say, by taking a systems approach, we discover this. You, the, the, they are the kind of statements you're making. You know, the information that you will get on that. So it's good that you ask the right questions. So that I think as any good researcher, you're asking, am I now asking the right questions here? But we have to be careful. The information set we would have about people's behaviors, about what's really the norm in society, how this will be changing, how quickly, what it would be responsive to, and so on. It's a lot of imperfect information here. You need so lots of careful research from all kinds of disciplines to properly understand that. Plus, the approach could have just as well failed. The, because, you know, the, the, because you, right. we, we're taking a punt in a world of incomplete information of how the systems work. And so I think we just should be careful is that actually, you know, there will be examples where we have successes with this. Mm. 
Um, I, I would have loved to read a few, given the, the appeal you make about failure and so on, that, that, that I would have loved to have read a few failures of Dick mm. and his approach where you're actually getting the wrong thing. Mm. Uh, because I think, you know, we just should be conscious. The world is messy. Whatever approach you're using here, you're not necessarily going to get the right answer and the successes that you will get. I, I agree 100%. I, Owen asked me for something which gave a kind of practical example of scale-up, and that was one which was... But what so, I thought so you were going to say... But, but, but I guess the, the point I want to kind of make in relation to this is... Uh, I, and it goes back to my very opening point. I'm not saying that we should avoid that, you know, looking at complex problems means not being careful. I, we need to be careful. We need to be systematic. We need to make sure we weigh up the evidence. All I'm, all I'm arguing for is that there's a family of tools and approaches that are out there which enable us to understand the problems, understand relationships, behaviours, dynamics, which we should be using more. That, that's, so, that's my only point. I was very influenced by reading Tim Harford's book, Adapt, mm. which is all about this idea of of testing and, and learning and iteration. And he doesn't quite say, but I took from his book the idea that every solution to a complex problem is the result of iteration and adaptation. And what struck me about your example was that it felt like a planning solution, right? That you, it was just better planning. It was mm. planning by looking at a bigger data set. You know, we need to think about relationships. We need to think about people. We need to think about the, the effects on disease and the effects on the families. So more data, and then we can plan a better answer. What I didn't hear I in, in your example was we tried this and it didn't work, so we abandoned that. We found this was working, so we did more of that. I didn't hear about the iteration part yeah. that I was expecting to hear in the, how you solve complex problems. Well, the, the key is the, the external uh, aid agency actually supports the community's own iterative processes in dealing with malnutrition. So the adaptation in that situation doesn't need to happen amongst the aid agencies. They need to find ways of enabling that to happen amongst communities because uh, the idea being that poor people can actually manage malnutrition given the right inputs, given the right resources and right tools. You don't need to have an external agency. So that's where I would say the iterative adaptation happened in that particular context. I, I, related to this, I, my, my, my worry also with some of the approaches, say, by, by contrasting, saying, an approach that looks at particular pieces of the jigsaw and tries to really pin them down, which I would say is a normal scientific approach, compared to what you're describing here, or take a look at the whole system. There's a real issue here. How far do I need to go to look at the whole? And one of the worries also I have reading your book is to try to make that, make that a trivial question. I can look at the whole of everything I need to do for urban planning. Now, clearly, that's the real art of this approach, I don't say it's science here, the real art of this approach, will actually know how far up do you need to go to actually get something. And this is actually where, again, I think it's, it's likely to be, you know, a scientific approach would actually be largely looking for, you know, how complex do I need to make, how complicated do I meet, me, need to make to still get meaning, meaningful answers. So we should be very careful when applying to development, simply saying, surely you must look at everything. You know, I see this in different, some of these theory of change, where there is basically an arrow in any direction between anything and everything. Of course everything hangs together. But the, the real issue is here to really understand what are the key relationships between it. I mean, that's also an, an, a, a real part of network analysis, being yeah, very careful. Absolutely to identify what are the real ones, and that needs to be done very carefully. So looking at a whole, that's not quite what we're saying, and we no, should be very clear I, that I, that's not I what we're saying. I think stepping back to take a look at the 
at the problem in the round, as it were. It's not everything, you know. Uh, the, the fundamental interconnectedness of all things means that you could you could say that poverty is linked to the performance of a particular company in the FTSE 100, and you could probably correlate it. But actually, it, does, it doesn't necessarily mean it's meaningful, nor is it something you should include in analysis. And where you set the level of zoom for these different approaches is really important. But I, where I would disagree with you is saying that simply because the scope of what you're looking at, the variables that you're looking at, are greater that it's not scientific. This is still a set of scientific tools and approaches. It's just we are, we're, we're looking at the problem. Uh, to, to say otherwise would be to invalidate evolutionary biology, systems ecology. No, no, you don't have to misunderstand me here. And, and, and yeah. I know I put, put it up there. But, but, you know, it's a bit like, you know, the, the real art of science is asking the right questions. Exactly. And this is, again, we should not underestimate. But before we but can ask the right questions, we have to know that we have to be able to make sure we're, we understand the kinds of problems we're facing. And my, my, my argument, in a sense, is to say for the kinds, many of the problems we face in development, we, we find ourselves in a, a, with a limited repertoire of tools and techniques, rulers, thermometers, and so on. And we find ourselves having to measure something which is not length or temperature or whatever. And I, all I'm saying is that there's a set of things that help us understand like weather modeling, uh, help us understand those problems in the round, and, and we should be using them more. But, but I think and, so. And doing I, so is valuable. Because, because I think, you know, this is maybe, again, where I fundamentally, this, you know, this is part of what I actually quite agree with you, mm. this using this, some of these approaches when you try to think about implementation and management. I'm quite sympathetic to that. Mm. When we're talking about that this is, has to be the base of understanding the reality and, and analysis, I have more, 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 more problems with. But coming back to that latter, we refer to the point that Tim Harford made on the, on, the, on the ADAPT. You know, the real key with all these things whether we do it in a fairly linear way or in a very complicated way where we're doing it. It's always about the information that you can use to adjust, to learn, to change. And there's a real problem with that, isn't there? In, I mean, I, you know, I spent some time in DFID in my own career, and it is very difficult, partly because the transaction costs involved in setting up any project are so great that setting up small projects and learning from them and growing is very different. You know, if you're, if you're not wanting to spend £20 million, nobody's interested in your project. So you have to have a project that spends £20 million. And to do that, you have to have a grand plan for how you're going to spend it. And it's very difficult then to adapt and learn and iterate within the framework of an aid agency. Is, is, I, are you grappling with that? Um, are we, are we grappling with this? I would not reduce it simply to the size of, a, of, of the, the amount of money that is disbursed. I think in general, and I think that is really, and I think I would say that's where real challenge is for any organizing. I would say for any public uh, organization, any government department on anything, with relatively few people having to set up systems that actually can uh, be that can adapt, that can learn, that can fail, that can change within the process. Because the, the real challenge with all these things is are always about information, feedback loops, and then the incentives to act on it. And it's these two parts that actually are, for anyone, really always very hard. You know, if we talk about bureaucratization, ultimately it always comes back, we don't think they have the incentives necessarily always at their disposal to, to make things work, or they have an incentives to... Uh, to, to change something, and secondly, do they have the incentives to actually uh, uh, take information, process it, and do it? With any of these approaches, and not least with more complicated pro uh, uh, governance, governance issues and so on, it's a real, real challenge. So but what's weird in this case is that the individuals who are out 
actually implementing aid projects and programs, on the whole, generalizing a bit, do have an incentive to test ideas, to adapt, to learn, to iterate, but are constrained by dysfunctional systems from doing so. So this isn't a problem of the difficulty of the centre transmitting the right incentive down. It, 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 the problem is trying to stop the centre from transmitting ineffective incentives down the system. I hope very but, much we're also some of that different now. But also there's, <laughs> there's some innovations. You go into programs and you, you ask the really successful things and they say, well, we'll tell you this, but we don't want to tell this to our donors because they'll come down on us like a ton of bricks. So there's actually some unseen innovations that happen. And I'm not saying diffid is kind of... But, but I think the, the more, more fundamental thing and what we, be, we be, you know, where we seem to agree is we need good science, we need good research, we, we need to be make sure that we're not making kind of, in moving away from a reductionist view of the world, we're not making huge sweeping assumptions. I'm totally with you there. But I think we're both agreeing that we do need new, new kinds of aid programmes that are designed to adapt, that are designed to be able to change according to context. Can you so give us an example of what that would look like, that, that DFID isn't doing, or no, no. perhaps that DFID is doing that you particularly want to highlight and, and celebrate? Um, so I would say, let, let's move away from DFID. So a good, good example. <laughs> a, good, a, good, a good, good example of a need for this kind of system is in dealing with uh, measles in West Africa. So measles, as we know, vaccination has helped deal with measles in large parts of the world, but in certain parts of sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, it's still a major killer amongst under fives. Um, if you look at the data on measles in countries like Niger, actually, the when an outbreak happens, when it doesn't happen, and so on, what you find... It, if you just look at aggregate data for the country and over, over a year, you, you get a certain kind of pattern that looks fairly predictable. But then when you get down to more micro-level data, say you look at Niamey, and you look at it over the course, over, over uh, broken down into months, which is what MSF did recently, they essentially identified that there's an unpredictability to the measles outbreaks and they only ever respond after the event. And when they do respond, they can have a few cases one year, a few cases one year, and suddenly 11,000 cases in Miami, out of, seemingly out of nowhere. And then they respond with the WHO, and this was what happened in 2003, they respond through the WHO, but actually the response doesn't really help very much. So the, what you're talking about here is an international aid system that's designed for a certain kind of predictability, public health generally, but as in, you know, I, I nod to Stefan there, it's not just international development, it's public administration, but the challenge that I see is how it manifests itself in development. So you've got a system that's geared towards a certain kind of predictability, reliability, and so on, that's dealing with something that is very unpredictable. And what MSF in there and the government of Niger were kind of partners in this, they brought researchers in, complexity scientists in, to actually look at the data over a 17-year period, look at the thresholds, and they look at the point, and, and try and correlate those to other things that are going on. And they identified, unsurprisingly, there's a there's high degree of seasonality to the measles outbreaks. They always happen at the start of the dry season in November and stop around March when the rainy season starts. It's to do with um, population swelling. It's to do with, and they correlated that as well, so at the end of the, when the agricultural opportunities end around October, people will start flooding in. And the dry season also makes it, uh, the dry air also makes it easier for um, uh, pathogens to be transmitted. So they, are, they, they mapped all of this stuff and actually said, uh, and they wrote an article about it and said the the Sahel is a poster child for non-linear epidemiology. Uh, and it, it made Nature magazine, it was, you know, in terms of the science of epidemiology, it was, it was a significant thing. What, what they then uh, tried to do was, 
influence, and it's a process that's ongoing, to say we need to have a more scientific approach to surveillance that's real-time, that's geared towards the vaccination programme, which enables an aid agency to actually have some funding, not just in a responsive mode when a crisis happens, but enables them to gather the data, see what's going on, and apply things and to learn real-time. And that required a few things. It required more operational research, not just research which was around theories of change and then evaluation, but nothing in the middle with you know that monitoring bit. We need more investment in operational research that actually showed how NHS agencies' work was uh, evolving over time, bringing rigour not just to the evaluation but to the implementation process, which they identified wasn't there at all, um, and enabling better relationships between these scientists and the, and the practitioners. And they identified a bit of a distrust, really, amongst practitioners of, of scientists that, and of research. And I think that that, that that kind of relationships of trust are, are kind of, and candor are really important. But if you don't have those things, you can't possibly hope to have a programme that fits the problem. You, you will only have best practices. You won't have best fit. I would think that an awful lot of what happens actually in development is informally designing, trying to design itself around some of these principles that you have. We don't necessarily have to bring in... Uh, you know, uh, complexity tools or whatever. These are, to me, the way you talk about it, like the measles example, is a case of, you know, a very careful identification of, you know, having a clear objective there and where the incentives of the different actors seem to be aligned. You know, there's no one that actually would like that measles epidemic and in a way everybody would like that problem to go away which is already something a lot of problems in development we don't even have that we may want to do it but there's always going to be interested part in not so that's the first thing the second thing is there is just a very good diagnostic you know to me that sounds like just good research and if they then sold it as complexity theory nonlinear epidemiology that's just good research you know getting these patterns done that is just a good careful uh, research and a good diagnostic which requires information, requires data. For an awful lot of problems in development, we don't have them. And then second, and then finally, thirdly, it's, it's having clear information loops to that you can act on it and, and incentives to act. So, you know, and then coming back to actually, this is the earlier question I have, do we have systems that are flexible enough to do this? Um, I don't think we do in general in development. We don't have it in public administration, but it also has a lot to do you have to have a basis of change your action. Mm. The information looks, you know, it's not just, you, you like to say it's not just like monitoring, but just having this kind of flow of information that allows you to respond. And think of a governance intervention. Your information is very patchy and says this really, do we need, really need to change this? You know, think of a, a poor advisor sitting in DRC having to do political advice on, on the fragility or not of the, of the, 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 in Kivu at the moment, how stable it is. So you, you have to be, be conscious of that. It, I mean, monitoring, uh, it, just to pick up on that point, is, is I think one of the biggest weaknesses in development at the moment in terms of the, amount, the quality of that information, how it's utilised. If you look at any evaluation report of a programme, DFID funded or otherwise, you, you could put a standard sentence in. Monitoring data was not good enough for us to actually utilise this. But I want to come, to come back to another point, which is around operational research. And this is actually through my experience of working with DFID. Um, quite interestingly, there, there's a government network which brings together operational researchers um, in different government departments across Whitehall, so DEFRA, Home Office and so on, Department of Health. Um, and these are the people that traditionally use system dynamics, network analysis, agent-based modelling. This is the home of this stuff in government. 
And when I heard about this meeting, I asked, could I be invited um, on, as part of the work I was doing? And they said, oh, we didn't invite anyone from TIFID because they don't have any operational researchers. Uh, and this is a really interesting thing. So, and th so I kind of got in, but, but th there's at least this assumption that TIFID doesn't do this kind of work. So uh, that in itself is quite uh, a question. Let me segue um, into, uh, I think, a last question um, from uh, Soren Janvig, um, also given to us through Facebook. <laughs> and he says, uh, uh, he's somebody we, we all know from Twitter, I think. Yeah. Um, ben spends a big part of the book portraying what Andrews, Pritchett and Woolcock have neatly summarised as the paradox, that in Aidland, nobody and everyone believes in the modernisation theory. A bit ironically, part of the book tends to leave the impression that complexity is something identified in the field, whereas the problematic behaviour of donor agencies is the outcome of a non-complex system, or at least neglected as being equally complex. So my question is, what could be learned from applying complexity thinking to our analysis of donor behaviour, and what would that entail for the effort to make donors engage with complexity thinking, or indeed uptake of research more generally? So that... <laughs> I'll have a go. Do you want to have a go? I'll have a go, but definitely on the last point, is that surely, you know, whether we call it complexity of systems or whatever research, you know, we should be all acting in this space, be just much more conscious of, you know, what are the stated objectives, the true objectives, the true incentives of the different actors in this, in this kind of environment. Including the donors. Including the donors, especially in the, the whole international system, the whole thing. It would help us to, you know, one of the things that you, you know, that you make a bit of a strawman of in the beginning of your book is this kind of, you know, what are the objectives and the, and the whole thing. And we just should be willing, you know, of course it, we can't quite uh, fully publicly share always that analysis. It's quite thing. Of course we do it. And it's something that you quite obviously would do. You know, like what is the true incentive of a particular part of the international system to reform, even if the stated objective is something else? What is the true incentive for another organization to actually get quality of something improved while actually they have maybe an incentive to just do turnover? We should just understand it and actually act in it. You know, this is still international policy making is international politics as well, and it's the politics of all these institutions, and we should deal with it. Yeah, I guess again, the, a good example from the work I've been doing with DFID, where as part of the end-to-end -end review, which is looking at DFID's own internal program management processes, we applied um, systems thinking tools to essentially sh show how the program management process was, in a number of ways, suboptimal. Uh, that there were all kinds of decisions being made about what, ex ante about design, uh, about what will be uh, done if, if it was going to be more effective and how that would then lead to successful programs. And we went in, we did a run a series of workshops. We used, uh, we worked with system dynamics folks that do a lot of work with the MOD on, on system systemic issues in procurement. And we did analysis, which I think uh, resulted in a, 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 a series of explanations of, of that particular problem as a complex systemic issue and identify different entry points for the, taking that forward. And, and, did, it was, and did it make a difference? Well, the, um, the feedback we got from the people involved is that it enabled them to get much more robust analysis much more quickly than they would otherwise have been able to through that method. Whether or not they've been able to utilise that and, to, and we're still having ongoing conversation with them. And it was a relatively small piece, you know, 20 mm. researcher days. So it was a relatively small pilot piece of work. But... Um, uh, Stefan can say but, more but this that. is yeah so I'm quite happy to actually say something about it so you know as you correctly uh, named it is the end-to-end -end review and something that we definitely in DFIT are very conscious of is that um, 
there is a lot of almost, you know, a lot of design work that you end up doing that actually never will see the day of light because things may already be changing before you can start implementing. And it's trying to find the right balance between good, high-quality design accounting, but good at making the right choices early on, because you do lock yourself into all this thing with, 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 with design, and actually creating some processes of um, flexibility and maybe some forms of feedback looks, looks throughout the process. You know, it's also in, this, in, a, in a context of it, it, it all the way up to control systems where you say, you know, where do you want to have most of your control systems? In a lot of eight organizations, that is it simply at a decision point of spending the money? Do you actually want to actually see whether control points should be better placed across the board in, during implementation and, and, and so, so on learning? So we have a process and, and it's quite an important important piece of work, you know, Secretary of State takes a lot of interest in it, and, you know, the, the, the vision has to be is that, you know, whether it's all going to be informed by complexity theory or not, it is still going to be trying to have a leaner set of processes that build in some more flexibility, that build in, you know, empowerment at the right levels of authority, um, but will it build in this iteration? Will it build in this ability to adapt and learn? No, and yeah, building, building ways is a core part of actually saying, building, building in a minimal sense the ability to stop and start again, hmm. which is already one thing, being able to you know, find a way of saying, you know, stop early enough. You know, there's a real problem, I think, in general in public administration is this sunk cost problem. You know, this kind of idea, you know, I've put already so much in it, so let me then therefore right. continue and while it's actually making right. the wrong decision. Right. So I'm we'll be look an idiot if it, if it mm. turns out within three weeks that the thing isn't going to work. So yes. I may as well just continue. Exactly. And so, so that actually making right. it easier to stop things, to reallocate your resources, to be, be more flexible. You know, there are all kinds of challenges. What is the information system you need? Mm to be able in real time to actually adjust and, 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 and adapt and, and, and to change. And so you're grappling with that right now? Absolutely. Did, and is there, a, is there an end point to this review or is this an ongoing process No, no, change? no. We, we, we're pretty sure there, well, will be, there will be concrete and practical outcomes in the, the in, the next, unit, the yes, in the next six months. We will definitely uh, try to get elements of that and then definitely it will, will become quite public. But it's, it's, a, it's a real uh, sense of, you know, to try to make sure that during implementation there is a process of learning and some form of adaptability within the constraints of systems, within a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a real design world, not some kind of fictitious design, but something that can actually then deliver throughout. Final word to Ben Remellingham. Uh, Stefan, I, th I think we actually agree on the need for good research and the need for uh, rigor and, and approaches. And I, and I think you're, um, I, I, I kind of take some of the critiques, uh, the straw mans and so on. But actually, I think, I think the value of this stuff, I, I think that you, you see, you actually see it. And there's a slight kind of grudging, <laughs> grudging kind of point that you're making that actually some of this stuff can be really useful and is really important. And, but for me, the question is, can we get it from research into the way that aid agencies do it. And you, you seem to suggest that actually we don't need to have researchers focusing on it. I think that's actually what we do need. We need more of that and we need to bring it into aid agencies. I lied. 
Last word, Stefan Durkin. Well, I think you kind of summarized my position. I think we're we, we, we creating straw men and we risk it definitely in the research endeavor to trying to say it's all there and so on. From a practical point of view, there is a lot of value to these approaches. You know, it's not for nothing that the management theory and so on, elements of complexity and wicked problems and so on, get something. There, you know, there is definitely a lot of shared ground, but I would be a bit more cautious on the research side. Ben Mellingham, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thank you very much for having me. And Stefan Durkin, thanks well, for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you both. You've been listening to Development Drums with Ben Rallingham, author of Aid on the Edge of Chaos, available in all good bookshops, and Stefan Durkin, Professor of Economics at Oxford University and Chief Economist at DFID. I'm Owen Bader. Thank you for listening.